it's embarrassing, but illuminating in lots of ways, despite the fact that I was absolutely the kid who would come over here to go to like peace rallies. This was like, I'm 53. So this was in like the late seventies, early eighties or whatever. Um, that I would, you know, come to peace rallies. I would go to punk rock concerts all the time. I would wear like end racism now shirts. I could talk about like apartheid in Sun City in South Africa. And I swear to God, it never crossed my mind that I was living in an apartheid state. Welcome to The Journey Here, a podcast that profiles the stories of community builders from all walks of life. I'm your host, Steve Dooley. Okay, my guest today on The Journey Here is Matt Hearn, co-founder of Solid State, uh, a creative production cooperative and hub in Surrey, BC that works with youth from newcomer and racialized migrant families. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Steve. How are you doing today? Uh, fantastic, actually. Good day today. The wind, I, I live out in a Fraser, and the wind was uh, the wind was fantastic. I'm looking forward to getting back to it, actually. Very good, very good. So, you know, it's called The Journey Here, and so we wanted to get to know Matt, the person, before we really dive into talking mostly about solid state. But maybe just tell us a bit about yourself, yeah, who is Matt as a kid growing up and any, anything that comes to mind that influenced you from that time to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a sprawling, open-ended question. There, I like it. So I'm a fourth generation settler of uh, mixed English, Scottish, Irish, French, and probably a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather arrived in North Vancouver via the shipping trade in the early 1900s. And I grew up on Vancouver Island on Sacum territory on the west side of the Sandwich Peninsula, pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that growing up in the country, it was fantastic up until the time I was about 12 years old. And after that, it turned into a particular kind of hell because um, I knew there was fun stuff happening everywhere. I, I knew that there was these gigantic, awesome parties. Mm. I just had no possible clue where those were. And they certainly weren't happening when you were around me. Uh, and I grew up with, uh, with my parents and my grandmother and my brother. And in large respect, I'm thinking about it right now when you're asking me about my journey here. And so much of that is kind of related around my grandmother, huh. who was my third parent in many ways and a, a primary caregiver when I was young. Uh, and he just recently died at age 102. Um, wow. Yeah, and she was like a very sort of a, you know, complicated and complex and domineering presence across our whole family. Um, But so much of that answer about where I come from, which is for a lot of like white people like me, it's it's sort of a complicated question because it's unclear. And so much of our our histories on this land are kind of shameful. Um, I'm a fourth generation settler who grew up on the coast of Canada on unceded and and occupied Sacum territory. And, And I now live in Richmond, BC on occupied and unceded Musqueam territory. You use the word shameful. I'm, I'm just curious, when did you kind of come to an awareness of that sense of shame about, as you say, for us, uh, white settlers are kind of the recognition of what actually happened and perhaps even our role in it. Did you, did you have a sense of that when you were younger or is that something that came much later? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question, actually, Stephen. I don't really have a good answer to that question, except to say that as a kid, so I, you know, my family's kind of like, whatever. My father was a social worker. My grandmother and my mom both worked in hospitals. 
and I certainly had kind of a generalized liberalized politics that emerged into a full-fledged like punk rock anarchist kid by the time I was, you know, a young teenager. Oh. And so I certainly was like, you know, a kid with a big mouth and a mohawk and an end racism now t-shirt. But I tell this one story, which is that, so I went to this school called Parkland Secondary and, you know, it's like whatever, regular high school of a thousand kids or something like that. And there was a fairly significant indigenous population because where I grew up was surrounded by three separate reserves. Um, but from my school, so I, from grade nine to 12, uh, we all took the school bus home. Um, well, there are two school buses, one school bus for the non-Indigenous kids and one school bus for the Indigenous kids. Hmm. But there's only one road, the, the West Saanich Road. And it, it was the one road that everybody had taken, all the buses had to go. Um, and so these two buses would pull up outside the school and we would line up for the buses. The Indigenous kids in one line and the non-Indigenous kids, almost exclusively white kids, in another line. And then they would, you know, fill up with kids and then the buses would leave, but they would trace the exact same route. There's only one route to take, really. Right. Um, so if there was an indigenous bus first, when it got to a reserve, it stopped and our bus stopped behind it. So these two buses were traveling the exact same routes at the exact same time, going from the same school. And yet they were entirely segregated. Wow. Um, and there was never like fights or anything that I remember or any kind of open antagonism. But I absolutely would never have crossed my mind to get on their bus. And presumably they would have never thought to get on our bus either. And I promise you, Steve, and this is like, you know, it's embarrassing, but illuminating in lots of ways, despite the fact that I was absolutely the kid who would come over here to go to like peace rallies. This was like, I'm 53. So this was in like the late seventies, early eighties or whatever, um, that I would, you know, come to peace rallies. I would go to punk rock concerts all the time. I would wear like end racism now shirts. I could talk about like apartheid in Sun City in South Africa. And I swear to God, it never crossed my mind that I was living in an apartheid state. Um, wow. It never crossed me as weird until you start, you know, sort of kind of processing that maybe later and I don't know, university or something like that. Or maybe now as I tell the story and I'm like, that is surpassingly absurd. And I don't ever remember anybody saying anything about it. Um, yeah. Did you hang out with in, any of those indigenous kids? No, I, I, I hung out with there's like, like one or two black kids in the school. And because I played basketball my whole life, uh, there was one kid who was, a, who was a great basketball player who I grew up playing with. And I, I had a Chinese friend, but I was subjected to my family, which was even a liberal family. Like my grandmother, who raised me substantively as a child, was like overtly racist yeah. um, in no unapologetic ways and not, not even subtle ways. And what I've noticed over the years, as I think about my grandma, is that many of her prejudices sort of waned as she got older, um, that she knew that she had to be, you know, welcoming and tolerant to, to LGBTQ mm -hmm. folks. She knew that, like, to speak ill of Black people or South Asian people was probably was just not on. Um, mm -hmm. But her antagonism and overt racism to Indigenous people never faded. And even though, like, Indigenous people were, like, literally, you know, I don't know, half a kilometer away in either direction from her house, or maybe because of that. Um, mm. And I, I have lots of thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that us as white people like. And in small town British Columbia, the, the sheer outright unapologetic racism and, and like pro-colonialist attitudes are, I would not say untouched, but, but certainly still highly, highly visible, highly relevant and highly dangerous. The sheer antagonism towards indigenous people retains a certain kind of force. Um, Absolutely. I don't know why that is exactly. No, I don't know why either. Hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier about kind of living in the rural, rural area, then kind of feeling like you're missing out on the big parties happening in the city and so on. Does that explain your uh, dive into, into punk rock? 
and, and maybe you did want to connect with a more diverse group of people, including Indigenous people in, in the city. Yeah, like so many folks who grew up in country, I just wanted to go anywhere, honestly, like anything and anywhere that was available to me. Like I just knew there was stuff happening in the world. And it strikes me that much of where I grew up was very committed to the idea of organizing both individual and familial and social lives so that nothing unusual happened. Did you do the going right from uh, post-secondary university or did you take some time to... Yeah, right after that. No, I was, I was not an easy child um, in any sense of the word. And uh, all my love to my, uh, to my dearly departed father, my dearly departed grandmother, uh, and to my still very much alive and kicking mother, and the rest of our you know, aunts and uncles and our tight family for mm-hmm. all the trouble I caused everybody and continue to do so. But I think the trouble I caused them now is, is much less harrowing. When I was a teenager, I was, I think, a fairly unapologetic bad kid in all the ways that a teenage boy can be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when I graduated from high school, I... Um, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And my mother surreptitiously signed me up for something called Canada World Youth. And she filled out the forms and, and signed it for me. Um, I'm sure just to get me out of the damn house. Uh, but I went on a youth exchange for most of my first year out of high school. Uh, I went to Alberta and to India on this long youth exchange. Wow. Um, and then I returned and then I, I went to work. And then I, I, went to, uh, I went to Queen's University, which is in Kingston, Ontario. Yeah. And, and and I'm so damn old that the way you went to university back in the day is that you wrote away to them and they sent you a catalog. So I wrote away to a few different universities because I just knew I didn't want to be in British Columbia anymore. And frankly speaking, wanted to be as far away from my family as I could. Mm-hmm. And I um and, and they sent back these cat. Maybe you remember them, but they sent back these like they're like fancy brochures. Oh, and I remember. The university had these beautiful like old limestone buildings. So I was like, yeah, I, I want to go there. Um, by that time I had marginally settled down in fact i wasn't getting arrested any longer for for being an idiot um i managed to get through two years of university barely and then i quit and one of my professors insisted i didn't quit but like um that i had to finish my last few courses by independent study which was kind of a scam and i got some kind of three-year degree out of which you used to be able to get back in the day at a queen's university mm-hmm. um and i just didn't want to do that in university, all I wanted, I was just really engaged in social activism. So we had this kind of large group and basically we just like caused trouble and got arrested constantly doing um, mostly indigenous support in Tamagami and Atasanan. So I spent a couple of years with this crew of people doing direct action of all kinds um, of ecological and indigenous support actions. And then I ran out of gas about being in university. Uh, but I moved to New York City because I wanted to become a war journalist, which is something I had settled on as a career that might kind of answer some of my desires. And I, I, I worked at The Nation magazine, which is America's oldest weekly magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a job at The Nation. And uh, this is in 1991, right in the middle of the Iraq war. And it was an unbelievable time for me. Um, it was an unbelievable time in, in so many ways. And, and I, there's, it's one of those sliding, sliding doors kind of moments. Yeah. Where, oh, I wonder what my life would look like because I was on a, on a clear path. And I think I had a fairly clear shot at, at figuring out how to be in an international journalist covering conflict. Um, I'd made enough friends in New York City at the, in the journalism business, and I had a couple of good friends who were mentoring me uh, into the industry. And my, my girlfriend came down to visit me in uh, the spring of 1991, and within a week she was pregnant, um, huh. of course, wholly unintended. Um, I skipped a few uh, birth control lessons in school, apparently. Um, and, um, and because we were in New York and it was the 90s, we didn't have health coverage and it was healthcare was wasn't as intimidating as hell in the States. We moved back to Vancouver to have a baby mm-hmm. uh, in 1991 with all, every intention of having a kid and then moving right back to New York City. 
Um, and that is by my counting now 30 years later. Mm. Uh, and we are still in the, uh, still in the Metro Vancouver area. And so, yeah, I, that, that's one of those sliding, sliding doors moments of a particular kind of pivot in my life where something could have changed and been very different. So you didn't get back to New York. You've been here for 30 years and boy, you've been doing a lot. I, I do want to ask about, you know, one of the themes so far in our conversation is, you know, kind of the badass thing you're talking about as uh, in high school and then what you did in Queens around social resistance. But it sounds like being bad for Matt Hearn is being good. Well, you know, and I and this is for, for lots of folks, and I don't, you know, the experience of this is, so I became a father when I was 22. Um, yeah. It changed everything, right? All of a sudden, it's like, now you can't get arrested anymore. You can't, like, yeah. and so really, and that's another way, is a lot of way to think about, you know, about who I am now. So I, I have the, the great good fortune of still being with that woman. So we've been together for 31 years now. One of the first things people always talk about that is like, well, Selena, she's really a, she's really a saint, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all right, fine. I've heard that enough already. Thank you. <laughs> well, actually, that, Matt, let me re- try and rephrase my question. Like, you sort of still have those qualities of, like, shaking things up and, and you know, not not just kind of mailing things in. And and I mean that as an appreciative quality about you. No, I appreciate um, that. No, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm regardless of how you meant it, I'm taking it as a compliment. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. Um, and I think you probably, like, from a certain kind of age of distance, you kind of look back and... I've thought about this a lot about how make people make decisions, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't, like you think of making decisions as like pulling out a piece of paper and writing the pros and the cons down and considering consequences and, you know, mapping stuff out and considering it. And I, and I feel like so much of my life, Steve has, has not been like that, that I, that really in many ways that the decisions, when they come, they're already kind of made for me. Um, yeah. Not for me, but like, I've already made them myself. Like I've thought through that scenario. Like, for example, when Selena got pregnant, we were 22 years old and like literally had no money. When we moved to Vancouver, we had $60 and two cardboard boxes of stuff and nowhere to stay. And I, I knew one person. And we, she was six months pregnant and we were sleeping under a kitchen table on commercial drive on a, in, a, in a studio apartment. Um, and it never crossed my mind that that was like a problem or like unusual or like, mm-hmm. I remember waking up one time and saying, yeah, I really should you know, get together and get a job real fast. You know, when I look back and I was like, well, like, I was certainly not anti-abortion. I thought, you know, when we're 22 years old and having a wonderful time and I had this whole kind of like career thing that I was so excited about, why when she got pregnant, did we not just think about having an abortion? And, and I, for some reason, and I'm 100% not anti-abortion in any sense, but for some reason, I, I guess I'd already thought that through and for reasons that were are sort of ineffable to me, because frankly speaking, Selena and I did not know each other well enough to have a child in any sense of the word. So we did. And that, that kid is, I was just telling you before we got on, I, I was just visiting that kid who's finishing her PhD up at McGill and was 30 years old and was like, I, I cannot find the correct words to talk about how proud I am of her. Yeah. You know, so I, I, re- I regret none of it. And so many of those decisions, they don't seem like they were decisions in the like, oh, I'm going to sit down and talk about it since. But in a sense that I'm like, um, and it, it sounds so flaky in West Coast to say it, but instinctual is not quite right, but yeah. like already decided how I was going to act. So, so when Selena got pregnant, we just moved to Vancouver and everything seemed wonderful and, and easy. And it was like, oh, that was just fine. That was a great thing. We were having a great time having a kid and our kids were born home. And then our, the first thing we did, you know, we needed a job because we had this idea about taking care of the kid half time. Yeah. But we, were, we didn't really find jobs and we weren't that qualified for anything anyway. So we just went up and down commercial drive. And we put up posters 
and this is of course long pre-internet, and so we hand drew posters and hand colored them and posted them with tape on poles and commercial drive. As soon as anybody wanted to start an alternative school. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this was like when we were like, by this time the kid was born, said he was born and we were like 23 um, and we just needed a job. We're like, why not? Let's see if we can start an alternative school. And like for reasons that of course are completely like incomprehensible to me, people did. And we, we started this alternative school called the Side Learning Center. And we, we ran out of uh, like storefronts and then warehouses for four and a half years until we ran out of money. And then we, we merged that school, which had grown really quite big with another school in, in North Vancouver. And then we ran that for a while. And then I started a, a youth project called the, the Purple Thistle Center in East Vancouver, which over the course of a decade grew to, uh, to a couple hundred kids that we served on a weekly basis. And it was this giant warehouse full of like bike fixing supplies and computers and libraries and art supplies and, and film rooms and stuff um, where everything was free for everybody. When I ran out of gas for that, I got really interested in Surrey and came out and started Solid State. Um, but each one of those pieces, they don't seem like I sat down and thought about it so carefully. It was like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And then like, this kind of unfolds and you look up and you're like, good God, I'm 53 years old. And now look at me. Um, yeah, but I sort of want to try and unpack that a little bit. So you come back from New York, you have the baby. What made you think you could do an alternative school? Because that was, it seems like a pretty predictive decision to what you're doing now, right? Like that feels like that was the first First yeah, step. Looking back on that, and the answer yeah. to that question is I really don't know, Steve. You know, and what's yeah. even more curious to me is anybody would think that we could, anybody <laughs> else could think we could do it, you know? Um, like, we were clearly ill equipped. We had lots of energy and lots of kind of like good, positive energy. And we were like, we knew a few things. Like, I'd worked with kids all my life in various ways, but like, like many of those kids are, are fantastic now. Yeah. It's funny, actually, my mom just sent me a, uh, a link to this website and it was a kid who just started his medical practice in sydney who was one of our first kids when he was six years old on commercial drive in early 90s fantastic you know you're a pretty modest guy in all of this like you've you, you do you did somewhere along the way you got your phd in urban studies um we were noticing today that you have your own wikipedia page you've done so much stuff uh, i don't have a wikipedia page so congratulations yeah. on that on that score but you've done a lot and uh, just the sense of modesty. Can, can I just ask you where the sports writing fit into all of this? Yeah, I played sports all my life. I, I taught tennis for lots. Um, I played basketball and I boxed a ton. And uh, at various points in my life, I've tried to kind of weed out my sports fandom and failed. Um, I remain a gigantic fan. And, and when the Grizzlies showed up in whatever year, what year was that? 92? 93, something like that. Yeah. yeah 92 when I started talking about it. And I don't know if you remember this or you're around, Steve, but there was a, uh, a sports weekly in Vancouver called Sports View. Um, and as far as I could tell, none of the sportscasters in Vancouver knew anything about basketball. Um, so I just sent my resume both to the radio station and to, the, uh, uh, and to that Sports View paper and said, hey, um, you guys don't, nobody has any clue how to report on basketball. And I do. Um, and so they, they both did. Cause that was actually true because I do know a lot about basketball and I can write some and yeah so I was a sports reporter that was part of the way because running uh running alternative schools in East Vancouver was making no money at all um and so I, I was a sports reporter on the side for eight years I covered the Grizzlies and I had uh I had a bunch of columns in Europe and I I had a couple of talk shows radio talk shows and I um yeah I did do some international coverage of, of basketball um and partially as a as a way to distract myself partially as a way because we just need some income because our schools are making no money because uh, our schools or any centers were always free and almost exclusively working with low-income folks. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you call that. Side hustle? Side hustle? Yeah, I don't know anybody in the league anymore, but he ended up having like a lot of pals on the Grizzlies and a lot of a lot of people involved in the Grizzlies who were, were real good friends. And, you know, it was weird, right? Like I was a, I was a young man, um, a young father with a couple of kids and, you know, a fairly like anomalous person in the NBA world. Um, mm-hmm. but a lot of those guys, you know, a lot of, you know, young black folks from, from Atlanta, like, and coming from various parts in the States, I think about Atlanta in particular because to a bunch of those guys were just, a bunch of the Atlanta guys were so good to me. Um, but it just provided like a, a particular kind of insight into a world that I had no idea existed, but I got this weird kind of access to it via my sports writing. And then you wrote that book one game at a time, right? Where you do you explore kind of the, I don't know if it's a love hate relationship with organized sport and yeah, uh, the yeah. money side of it and all that stuff. Yeah. And because you're, you're correct. So I do have a PhD and I really am interested in theory and like I'm interested in, um, in a lot of kind of intellectual discourses that I don't have access to in my daily life or regular access to like conferences or intellectual discourses or academic kind of circles. And so one of the ways that I think about things is, uh, is I write books about them. And so, yeah, so when I'm thinking about something, for example, the endemic kind of liberal uh, patronizing attitude towards sports that I think was really harmful and I think really like common, certainly through the 80s and 90s, is the idea that the sporting world is, as being something not worthy of real like kind of intellectual engagement. I, I wanted to talk about it and I want to talk about, uh, how, about the about meaning making in worlds uh, and sporting worlds and how important that is to people in so many ways, but as a person who participates in them for sure, but as a fan as well. And so a large part of that kind of my writing is just me thinking through ideas, hmm. um, thinking ideas in, in ways that I don't in my everyday life. Hmm. Okay, Matt, let's, let's get to the present day. Let's start talking about solid state. Uh, uh, we're, we're so thrilled that you brought uh, your energy and passion to Surrey. And I know it's not just about you. It's about the team you've put together and, and the, the youth that you're working with. Maybe just to talk a little bit about about how it all came together and um, any kind of insights about trying to develop an operation like this, kind of looking back, anything you would have done differently, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I lived in East Vancouver um, basically for my whole adult life and worked in a little stretch of commercial drive to the downtown east side running some of the projects I mentioned and a bunch of others. And about 10 years ago now, I guess, this old man who had appointed himself my mentor just looked at me and said, he said, Matt, these Vancouver you think you're working with, it's not in East Vancouver anymore. It's, it's in Surrey. Mm. And I knew he was right. Um, I didn't want to admit it and I resisted it like crazy, but due to kind of the endemic gentrification and displacement that's just kind of convulsing across Vancouver, particularly lower, the, the lower man in general, but Vancouver in particular, the lower income working class families and in particular, um, you know, racialized migrant families, folks who are coming here from other countries, unless they're coming with like significant amounts of independent wealth, they're likely not going to settle in Vancouver. It's just too expensive. The housing is too expensive. Racialized communities are inevitably ending up in Burnaby. They're ending up in Coquitlam. They're ending up in Richmond. They're ending up in Langley. But more than anywhere else, they're, they're ending up in Surrey. And I knew this was true, but I, because of my uh, typical and, you know, predictable Vancouver snuttiness, had really almost spent no time in Surrey. I've probably been in Surrey twice in my life. Mm. Um, but I knew this guy was right. And so I, I just started coming out here. So starting about 2014, I just started coming out and I didn't hardly know anybody. I just started cold calling people, you know, MPs, MLAs, mayors, schools, social workers, arts organizations, activists, and just tons of families and kids, basically anybody who would like pick up the phone, I would come out and I would just say, Hey, like, I'm interested in Surrey. Well, like, can you tell me about it? And, and 
looking back on it, the number of people that were unbelievably friendly and kind to me, you know, most people who didn't have a clue who I was and didn't know why I was asking, because I didn't even know why I was asking either, except that I knew that I had to get engaged in Surrey because it's just such an incredibly vibrant, interesting place, but certainly a place where folks that I like to be around are heading. And so a project just slowly, surely took shape. And I started kind of bringing in folks to get involved in it. Uh, folks that I've worked with in other projects, a young man named Isaac, who had been a youth at the Purple Thistle Center, but now, of course, was a, an adult. All kinds of people. We just started kind of gathering ideas and started slowly building this project. Um, and one of the things that was interesting to me, Steve, in particular, the first things is that, you know, if you were to, if you didn't know anything about Vancouver, but you walked into the city and you randomly just asked folks, you, know, you stopped a number of people on the street and said, hey, tell me about Vancouver. The first thing out of their mouth uh, inevitably is going to be around housing, around affordability, around rent. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that's, of course, you know, affirmed by like any kind of studies around like municipal election time where the most important issues are inevitably around affordability and around housing. In Surrey, that's, it's flipped and the, the vast majority of people and certainly around the like scores and scores and scores of people I talked about would say, hey, what's going on with Surrey? The first thing out of their mouths was inevitably about safety about community safety, about crime, about youth gangs, about youth alienation. And it's the first kind of narrative that people want to talk about when they talk about Serena. That's so curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways that there's some kind of truths to that, but mostly and so often what it sounded to me like uh, was a dog whistle, subtle sometimes, sometimes unintended around narratives around xenophobia, around, mm-hmm. um, around kinds of exclusions, around certain kinds of dispossessions and certain kinds of frankly, just straight out racism about black and brown kids in Surrey. Mm-hmm. And so I just got really curious. And so we began to design a project that would somehow begin to answer and to think about that in a different way. Um, because so much of Surrey, as you know, thinking about crime and community safety is simply more policing, more disciplinary stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's a place for that in the world, but I would say a very minor marginal place for that, um, frankly speaking, that this notion of, of crime and, and community safety is very real. But I think it also points to a whole number of other issues, in particular around social and health determinants of crime and what that looks like. And even to even begin to sort of think about well, what, what is it that we talk about when we talk about crime and why are we so fetishizing this idea of crime when we know, for example, the vast majority of, for example, gang deaths in the lower mainland are white kids. Yeah. Um, but why does it land on particular communities in particular ways? And those answers are obvious, right? Those answers are we live in a time of rising white nationalism and that arrives to places like Surrey in, in different guises. And so while I'm, I'm not denying that, that crime and community safety and gangs are real significant issues to think about, I, I wanted to think about it in, in different kinds of ways. And I found so many kind of really cool, thoughtful people thinking about youth and about thinking about crime and about community safety, but, but in a larger sense, just thinking about Surrey and, and thinking about racialized discourses and thinking about decolonial narratives in ways that I just got really energized by. Um, mm-hmm. so over the course of, it took us a couple of years to kind of launch it, but by 2017, we launched a pilot project of Solid State, which is to bring together small groups of youth from racialized migrant backgrounds to start workers' cooperatives. Um, and we started one workers' co-op in 2017 down in Newton with kids, young kids from Princess Margaret. Uh, and since then, we've essentially doubled every year um, so we have something like 18 co-ops up and running now. Our age group has expanded to include up to something like 32 is a, def- is a very generous and liberal definition of youth. And we have co-ops that range from for-profit to non-profit and all kinds of hybrids, but all of them adhere to this workers' cooperative model. So Matt, could you, would you mind giving our listeners just a sense of what some of the, like maybe some of the examples, you know, you're up to 18 co-ops. What are some examples uh, and, and what are they doing and, and what are they achieving? 
Yeah, you know, and for solid state co-ops, there's going to be two things that we have in common. The first one is that each of these co-ops makes decisions democratically and equitably. Mm-hmm. And the second is that we share resources and revenues democratically and equitably. It doesn't necessarily mean equal equally, but it means equitably. If you have those two things, we think we have something that might be called an anti-capitalist organization, something that is that gets rid of the idea of a boss that makes decisions equitably, but also gets rid of the idea of surplus labor value, um, in particular of the exploitation of that. That is to say that revenues and, and, and resources are shared in a way um, that honors time commitment and uh, returns value to the members. That is to say that, that the most important thing is protecting the members, protecting the workers in the cooperative, not protecting profit. And so that we think we have a different kind of organization there in our hands. And so some of those co-ops, they range from, for example, I'm just thinking, I was just looking today at a, at a streetwear company called Milieu that just launched. And that's a for-profit streetwear company that makes hoodies and t-shirts and shorts and is absolutely looking to make some income. And we have others that range from to the nonprofit. And we were just thinking about, for example, our EDI co-op called Lightwork, which is doing you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion work with a bunch of older folks. And they're, they're doing fantastic. Each of them are making incomes with a slightly different kind of trajectory. And we have everything in between those two things. So there's, we just launched two urban consultancies that are run by uh, six women, um, all of whom are graduated or recent graduates from MA and urban planning schools, who I think you've met the city and color women. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and we, have, we have others that are developing peer support networks for, to combat racialized gender-based violence in Surrey. Um, there's a whole range of them and various kind of interests, but they're bound together by this particular interest in, in working cooperatively. Hmm. And the, so the 18 co-ops, you know, they kind of work as those smaller groups, but does the larger group ever get together? Yeah, All you of- know, and one of the things we're super proud of is that we've never really closed. We closed for two weeks during the pandemic. Um, but other than that, we've stayed open through this entire kind of like last two years using kind of a combination of, uh, of smaller groups and uh, very strict kind of uh, safety protocols at the space. And, trying to get creative by meeting in parks and other places, but, but we managed to stay open because we have this, we have this sweet HQ over on Wally Boulevard that was built out for us by the Homes on Homes TV show crew in a very kind of weird twist. But the idea, the larger idea is certainly that we want to incubate these individual enterprises and we want them to become autonomous and we want them to become uh, self-contained, self-reliant and, and durable, financially independent organizations. But we're really interested in being much more than an incubator. We're interested in becoming a, a cooperative of cooperatives. That is to say a larger community. And yes, we're constantly bringing together these cooperatives and all these kids. There's about something like 120 young people involved in this directly, but we have a much larger community, of course, of, of friends and family and supporters. And while we do not have the large gatherings we used to have, we are constantly bringing them together like the, right. the, the scores and scores of people. But very hopefully we'll be starting to have those again soon, but we have many slightly smaller gatherings. We have a, a monthly event called Meet a Cool Person in Surrey. Um, <laughs> last month was uh, with uh, Pravdeep from the, uh, the Sikh Motorcycle Club. Mm-hmm. Um, spoke. We have picnics, we have events. And one of the things that we do a lot here is that we have an in-house cook and we are constantly holding celebrations and meals together. Um, so the idea is to create this larger kind of community of folks interested in working and being together in a different way. Um, but built around this idea of building workers' cooperative enterprises. That's fantastic. And just before we let you go, we're, we're kind of running short on time here, but tell us, our listeners, about the Black Arts Center. Is that Do I have the name right for the uh, what you're doing? In- sure, do. This is one of our co-ops that we're most proud of right now, in part because we're spending 
so much so much collective energy and, and heart on this is that we uh, with the help of so many folks we're opening this place called the Black Art Center which is going to be on City Parkway behind the Dominion Bar there in the uh, in the SkyTrain complex uh, and it's going to be um, it's going to be a community gathering space it's going to be a performance space for highlighting and celebrating Surrey and the Metro Vancouver's Black communities um, but open to everybody. Um, that place, we're going to try to have it open for Black History Month, but it's a place that we're particularly proud of and we encourage anybody who's listening to look it up, look up the Black Arts Center and look up uh, Solid State's website. Um, you can get a whole bunch more information about it, but it's a project that we're particularly proud of and I think we'll be, again, be able to focus many of our kind of activities and our events and our, our shows and stuff. Well, Matt, that's just fantastic and I'm looking forward to the opening and uh, looking forward to uh, meeting the, the community there uh, and to learn more about what's happening in the black art community. That's amazing work that you're doing. Uh, one final question. What's, what's next for Matt Hearn? If 10 years from now, what will we be talking about? Oh, good goddamn man. You, uh, I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> there you, go. you know, as, as per my, uh, my previous comment, you know, I'm not the greatest at that kind of long-term planning in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of okay. it's sort of been futile in some ways for me. In part because, you know, what's that thing people say? And not being a religious person, you know, you know, uh, you plan and God laughs. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I got no idea. Um, if, I'm, if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm above ground in 10 years, I'm going to be cheering hard. Hopefully I'm telling war stories to my grandchildren. Um, yeah. And I'm hopefully that, that Solid State is running beautifully and I can sit back and, and cheerlead. I guess that would be something like that. Yeah. I got no idea. I think maybe because I'm so deep in thinking about right now. Yeah. The next week is about as far as I got ahead of me right now. Well, that's a really good answer, actually. Well, Matt, listen, thanks. I, I, we could talk for hours and hours in here, and we'll probably have to have you back on the show down the road. But uh, just on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to thank you so much for joining the journey here today. I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate your forbearance and your tolerance and, uh, and your, your hospitality. Much appreciated. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Black Art Center and it won't be just there, but in the community. I hope you know that uh, uh, myself and Nav Chima and others here at the Surrey campus of SFU uh, hope you see us uh, as friends and supporters of Solid State for sure. We sure do. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time on The Journey Here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Journey Here. We hope you'll join us again on our next episode for more stories of people making an impact in their community. You can find The Journey Here on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. <laughs>